0: Scripture reading is from Deuteronomy 8, 11-20, found on page 4. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied— Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. You brought each one of us here today, and we come in different ways. Our hearts are in different places, our life stories are in different places but you bring a word that speaks to all of us, and I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds. I pray that you would have your way with us. And we ask it in the name of your son, amen. In 2014, the Atlantic magazine uh, ran an article and it reported that the wealthiest Americans, give 1.3 of their income to charity, and uh, the poorest give 3.2, over double what the wealthy give. And then the article began to talk about um, giving as it relates to geography, and it turns out Washington DC is highlighted in that article. And in it, they remark that the middle and lower income areas, Suitland, Maryland, Capitol Heights, Maryland, PG County gave proportionally more than the wealthier Bethesda and McLean. And so we have this local information, a case study, but there was also other data that I think was unique. I hadn't read it before. And that is they found that when wealthier people live among wealthier people, they're less prone to be generous. But when wealthier people live among those that are socioeconomically diverse, they give more. Now, what does this have to do with the passage? I think it has a lot to do with it. One, in this verse, it relates to this idea of living in a state or a place of need tends to make people more compassionate and generous. And also, there's difficulty living with success and prosperity. In preparation for the sermon, I, probably over an hour, I searched for, uh, this was my tagline, the dangers of success, or the dangers of prosperity, and all I kept getting was how to succeed and how to be prosperous. And that's probably no surprise because uh, in our culture, in our time, in our country, this is really the driving question for people. How can I become more successful, more prosperous? But the truth is we have difficulty thriving in good times. We have hardship thriving in times of prosperity. This is something that God points out to Israel the picture here is Israel is on the plains of Moab, getting ready to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness due to their own pride and rejection of God. And Moses here is actually speaking to the generation of children, those that, those that did not die in the wilderness because of judgment. And he says this to them, right? You will have eaten, you'll be full, you'll build good houses, living, herds and flocks and silver, and gold being multiplied. In fact, everything you have will be multiplied. So this is a picture of, you know, when you are enjoying five-star cuisine, when you are living in the dream house that you have, when your salary keeps going up, when the stock markets keep rising, that's when you need to heed this warning. It's thriving in the good times. And the temptation can be summed up with one word. You find it repeatedly in the text. Forgetfulness. You will forget the Lord your God. Beware that you don't forget. Tomorrow we celebrate Memorial Day, which is a day given that we might not forget those that sacrificed their lives for the defense and safety of this country, and we have other markers in society. 9-11, of course, you know, the slogan there is never forget. We have these times where we stop, whether it's good times or bad, because we know we have a propensity to forget. We have a tendency not to remember, especially in times of prosperity. And there's a spiritual parallel to this. God understand it. He wants us to understand it. So I want us to look at remembering God in our need and remembering God in our prosperity, those two things. Now, for the people of Israel, the symbol of their need were two things, exodus and wilderness. Those two things were the symbol of their need. The first, when they were oppressed slaves for 400 years in Egypt. We're told in Exodus chapter 1 that their life was, uh, their experience was ruthless. They were afflicted with bitter service. Yet in that time of need, they groaned and they cried out to God. And we're told that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. God saw the people and God knew. And so they're in a place of need, but they're connected to God. And then you have the wilderness which would have been fresh in their minds. Verse 15, the God who led you through terrifying wilderness, fiery serpents, scorpions, ground where there's no water. In the wilderness, Israel was exposed. They were vulnerable. They couldn't feed themselves. They couldn't protect themselves. They couldn't take care of themselves. And Moses addresses again these children and says, the reason that many of those adults died wasn't because God's promise failed but rather they didn't trust the promise they rejected the promise they rebelled against it and so he warns them when you go into this land of plenty and you move out of the land of want i want to warn you of two things one that one your hearts aren't lifted up that's just a way to say pride that you don't become full of pride, that your tendency is to say, my power and my strength got me here. Um, in American culture, there's a pretty good emphasis upon, we love the stories where people pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And we also um, tend to motivate by pride. Nearly every state of the union I've ever heard will have words like, we're the greatest country in the world, so therefore go do this. Right, so we could almost say uh, a, a vice is leveraged f- for the purpose of a virtue. Well, C.S. Lewis did say something like that in his chapter in the uh, in his book *Mere Christianity*. He has a chapter entitled "The Great Sin," and in it, he talks about pride and he says that pride is mostly what it's defined by is competitiveness. It's essentially competitiveness. Listen to what he says here. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. In God, you come up against something that is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And I would add that pride prevents us from seeing that we are in a place of need. A proud person can't go to that place, it's too scary, it's too vulnerable. They're quick to forget. Lewis raises this question, then what about proud religious people? How do we explain that? And he says, they exist because of imaginary gods. This is how, and it's similar to what we find in Deuteronomy, where God warns Israel, not only of the pride, but he then warns them and says, make sure you don't run after other gods. Now, by imaginary gods, I think we could think, these are gods that we imagine to be a lot like us. They like us. They think like us. They have the same morals. They have the same convictions. But also, it's an imaginary God in that we take something that isn't God and we basically make it our functional God, the God that we live for and live by. And it might be power. It might be career. It might be money. It might be influence or affluence. But we go to this thing so we won't feel needy. And we won't feel like we're in the desert in the place of want. And so in this, God reminds us that your career can be taking off. Your bank balance can be really fat. Your stocks can be doing really well. And you could be living in a spiritual desert. It's very possible that that could describe you or me. And so how do we respond? Two things. One is we need to have a ritual of remembering our need that's in our lives. You know what a ritual is, right? It's a rhythm. It's something we do over and over. When you go to a baseball game, a ritual is you stand up and hear the national anthem or sing the national anthem. We all have rituals in our lives. Maybe it's you wake up, you do your coffee, you do this, you do that. Do you have a ritual in your life where you remember your need? Now, I'm not just talking about when it happens to you because, you know, that comes in from the outside, but rather this is voluntarily placed into your life. All throughout the Bible, you find God reminding Israel, it's almost a ritual of their need represented in Egypt and the wilderness through the prophets, through the psalmist, regularly he's bringing it up. I want you not to forget this. And so for you and I, it might look like in my prayers and in my testimony, I'm regularly rehearsing my need. God, I'm saying, God, I remember that time when I was so needy. I remember that time when I was so clueless. I remember that, and, and it's, it's, it's our psalm. It's our story that others know and we know. And it's not out of guilt, this thing that means like anytime I'm happy, I shouldn't be happy. That's not it. And it's not out of fear that something will go wrong. You know, I come from a family where we're always afraid the other shoe's going to drop. Um, And uh, maybe I've mentioned this before, I can't remember, especially when it comes to sports. And I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, so the self-image of the city hangs on sports. And uh, basically, I remember a couple years ago when the Steelers, uh, they were about ready to clinch the Super Bowl. And uh, I got excited and I texted my brother and I said, man, we're a minute out, looks like we have this. And he wrote back, we'll see. And then, you know, we've been watching playoffs recently. Sorry, Caps fans. I know you don't want to hear that. But, you know, we're watching playoffs recently. And, um, you know, it it went to game seven last week. And I think I wrote to my brother and said, if you don't hear from me a couple times during the period, it's because I had to remove myself emotionally and go outside. And then at one point, he just wrote, even before the game started, this is going to be unbearable. (laughs) You know, watching your favorite team, right? in game seven, is unbearable. It's this idea that you can never be happy, right? Even in the good times. That's not what God is saying here. He's rather saying when you're on top of the mountain, just remember the valleys. You know, when you're on top of the mountain, remember you can look down and go, I remember the needy times, the place I was in. But how do we create an ever-present sense of need? It can't just be circumstance. One thing God, no doubt, we use in our lives is needy circumstance. He brings us into those places. You know why he does? Because if he didn't, we would never go there. We would never do it. I mean, I would never volunteer for anything uncomfortable in my life that makes me feel needy. The sinner in me doesn't want to do that. And so you've got to have a sense of need that is more than circumstance or you'll just go up and down. You need to have a spiritual sense of need that you abide in. Where you're regularly, that's your sense of need, is primarily that, your spiritual life. The Beatitudes are a good place to start in Matthew 5, where Jesus said, blessed are those, happy are those, good times for those that are poor in spirit, that know their spiritual poverty. Good times for those that know how to mourn over their sin. Living in a land of neediness. But the second thing, it's not just enough to remember your place of need. You have to remember God in your place of need. Israel for decades was in a place of need. It was ever before them. If you had to say, are you in a needy place? They could have listed off many things. Needy, we can't feed ourselves. It's hot. There's scorpions. We're vulnerable. Yes, we're needy. What they didn't remember was God in their place of need. And you and I can get into this, you know, where we we might confuse faith being only that I can articulate that I'm needy and I'm not in a good place. Maybe, but there's something more there, and that is, can I articulate that God will be with me in that place? He says, so you shall remember the Lord your God in the place of your need. But how do we remember God in the place of our prosperity? The land of Canaan is described this way. That's the promised land. In Exodus 3, a land of water brooks, fountains, wheat and barley, figs, oil, honey. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of abundance. But there's another thing important about it that we learned two chapters earlier it is a given land. Listen to what Moses says. God says through Moses, as he's describing the land, he says, it's a land with great and good cities that you did not build. And you have houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord. This is a, you did not land. Not you pulled yourself by the bootstraps land. It's a you did not land. It's a land of divine grace. It's a land that was given to Israel by God's mercy and kindness. And the things he said then unpack that grace. There's a couple hints, a couple emphasis we give that shine a light on that grace that will help you and I remember in the land of prosperity First of all, seeing that the place of prosperity is not so much a land of promise, but a promised land. You know, a land of promise is sort of just a place of lots of opportunity. Maybe you came to Washington, D.C., and for you it was the city of promise. You thought, I'm going to come here, and I'm going to knock it out of the park. I'm going to come to the big city, whatever it is. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a promised land. He says one that was confirmed by his covenant that he swore to your fathers, a promise that God made freely, a promise by nature is free. It's not compelled. It's a promise that God gave out of his heart to those that were undeserving. It went all the way back to Abraham, who was a pagan living in Mesopotamia. He was worshiping other gods. He was clueless to God. And God shows up one day and says, you, Abraham, I'm going to make into a great nation and I'm going to bless you beyond belief and then you're going to be the conduit for blessing the entire world. What did Abraham do to deserve that? Nothing. God gave this wonderful promise to him. It's a land that came to him. So that means when you and I look at prosperity and we see the little tag on it, it it says made in heaven. Or, you know, uh, this event is brought to you by God's mercy. As you and I look at the abundance of our lives, we see who it comes from. God's promise of grace came when Abraham didn't, when Israel was in the land, and he sends his greatest promise, the promise of his son, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, to you and I when we are clueless, when we are hardened, when we can't get ourselves out of the desert, he sends the promised son, Christ, to you and I. So the place of prosperity, we have to remember, it's a promised land before it's a land of promise. Second of all, that it's a land of deliverance. Whatever place of prosperity you come into, the challenge will be, can I see this as a land of deliverance? Let me explain that. Meaning it's a place that you're released into. They were slaves in Egypt. They were in bondage. And the way they get into this land is he releases them into the land. They don't come marching in on their two big feet. You know, there's this song I love by Peter Gabriel, big time, where he says, my heaven will be a big heaven and I'll walk through the front door. He's kind of making fun of this idea of, you know, I'm a big person and I'm gonna come through the front door with God. That isn't how heaven works. In heaven, it's only a group of released prisoners. That's all it is. That's the population of heaven. People that were slaves. People that were in bondage. And while Israel was in literal bondage, there's a spiritual bondage that God is talking about. This week I happened upon um, the story of Bridget Biddy Mason. Curious, has anybody ever heard of her before? Bridget Biddy Mason. I hadn't. And uh, she was a, a slave born in 1818, Um, In the south southern plantation, but she ended up uh, in a Mormon family that moved out west and When they moved out west they crossed over to California and the master didn't know that California had laws where Slavery was illegal. So immediately the slaves were free when they crossed over, but he didn't tell them that in fact when he found out and he started living around some free slaves who began to tell Biddy and some of the others that they were actually free he moved them to this remote canyon But these friends didn't stop being advocates, and they actually went to the court system. They brought the master in, and basically the slaves were freed. And so here she is in this new life, and she becomes a nurse, one of the few midwives in Los Angeles at that time, and devotes her life to helping other people. And some of her friends say, you know, you should invest in some real estate. And so she invests in some real estate, and it ends up being in downtown L.A., And so what happens is by the time she dies in 1891, she is one of, if not the the richest person in Los Angeles. Someone that had nothing, a slave. She becomes someone who's the richest person. But you know something? At her heart was her faith. She helped start the first African Methodist Episcopal Church in L.A. It started meeting in her home. And the generousness she had came out of her faith. She was known to say the open hand is blessed for it gives in abundance even as it receives. After some flooding in L.A., she told the grocer, I want you to feed everybody that lost their, you know, lost their home in the flood. And her home became this place. You know, this is really a beautiful picture of a people that have been set free and know it. They become generous. When you and I struggle to be generous with our time, with our gifts, with our money, in service to God, what it really says to us is we've forgotten we've been a released and delivered people. We forgot that we were slaves to sin, slaves to guilt, in bondage to selfishness, in bondage to rebellion against God, of of hostility toward God, not giving thanks to him, not living for him, not thanking him for the breath we have or the day we have. This is what you and I get into, but in the book of Romans, which we just studied, we're told in Romans 6 that we're no longer slaves of sin, we're slaves of righteousness, so we bear fruit. But lastly, the place of prosperity is a place of provision. There's two little references here. One is to the time when Israel was in the desert and they had nothing to drink, and God said, I want Moses to go up to this rock with a staff and he's going to whack it and water's going to come out of it, supernatural. Water from the flinty rock. And then also manna from heaven. Israel didn't have any food to eat, so God allows this honey wafer to supernaturally appear in the ground and they eat this manna. But those things weren't an end and of them themselves. They were object lessons for you and I. Because in the book of Corinthians, we're told that Christ was the rock. He was the rock the water came from. And Jesus himself says, I'm the bread of heaven. In the place of prosperity, the challenge is for you and I to see the thing behind the thing. Can we see the spiritual act behind the physical act? So to make it very practical, you know, you know when you're walking around in, in what you believe is a fine wardrobe, do you know it's just a hint of what it means to be clothed in Christ, clothed in holiness and blamelessness? When you're living in a well-designed house, in a beautiful home, do you understand it's just a reflection of the home that Christ has prepared for those that will go to be with him? When your wallet's full, do you really see it's just pennies from heaven? That you have a great inheritance before God, a spiritual inheritance. And after you've had the best meal in the world, do you still go away hungry and thirsty? Because you're hungry and thirsty for Christ? See, this is the test in the land of prosperity. It's not that we should never be in the land of prosperity. God delights to bring his people there. It was his idea to bring them in there. But the question is, can you and I see him in that place? The test of faith in the bad times, the test of faith in the bad times will come, but the test of faith in the good times might come more often. So let's pray that God will give us grace to live and thrive in the place of good times. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for how generous you are. We thank you for uh, the warnings you give us in scripture because you love us. And I pray that you would show each one of us here how they apply to us personally and that we would live and know you for Christ's sake. Amen.